One of the challenges, I think, for people uh, as they consider Christian things is the sense that if they become a Christian, they'll end up having to live a life bound and constrained by all kinds of rules. I remember talking to one person once, a woman once, who said uh, she doesn't want her kids involved because she thinks all the rules and regulations and so on of institutional religion will snuff out the light that's in them. And it was an interesting observation. She felt that uh, to be part of the institutional uh, church would be oppressive, uh, would bring these kinds of uh, constraints and difficulties. And she wanted her kids to grow up to breathe, to be whoever they wanted to be and to do whatever they wanted to do to find the freedom to be these things. And rules, these rules would be antithetic, would hurt that. Now, here's the deal, the reading today. Uh, did you notice that actually it's a list of rules. We come to this last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, and uh, chapter 12 was really the kind of climax of the sermon where it landed about the New Covenant and Old Covenant with us last week. But chapter 13, you just get this, you get this list of commands. Uh, keep on loving one another. Don't forget to show hospitality. Remember those in prisons. Marriage should be honoured by all. Be content with the money you've got. Remember your leaders. Don't be carried away by... St just list rule after rule, command after command. And I think there's about a dozen of them that just follow all the way through the chapter. And you can get the sense, can't you, uh, that, wow, yeah, Christianity is just about rules. It's just oppressive. And if you were with us last week, doesn't this sound a little like Mount Sinai religion? Do you remember we looked last week in chapter 12 at the two mountains? So there was Mount Sinai, which was contrasted with Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there's the joyful assembly of all the thousands upon thousands of angels and the firstborn and so on, the blood that speaks a better word. And we, we talked about the contrast between Mount, Zion, Mount Sinai religion, law-keeping, and the new covenant with Jesus. And we talked about how Mount Sinai was a covenant, uh, was an experience of religion that was oppressive, laws full of fear, whereas it was meant to be different. Now we come to chapter 13 and you go, well, how is it not that? What we have here is a bunch of commands and rules. How is this not taking us back to Mount Sinai? Rules that are oppressive and constraining and limiting of our freedom. Um, well, people sense this. And people, you know, people choose, I'm not going to be part of institutional religion. I, I believe there's a God, I believe there's a spiritual realm. I'm going to kind of do religion on my own uh, where I can be free and I'll pick and choose those rules that I think are appropriate. And, I'll do, and so people do, that's what they're doing. They're choosing more and more. Don't you feel this? What is it with Christianity and these commands? Now, how is it not? How is chapter 13 not taking us back to Mount Sinai and law-keeping? Do this, do that, constraint. The good life for most people is defined by being free. How is, not, how is this not the undermining of the good life? Two things. The first is fundamental. The first is this, that fear and oppression in religion, Mount Sinai, comes when the rules are the means by which you earn your way to God. If the rules in a religion are about what you have to do to find favour with God, what you have to do to make it to God, then you will live under oppressive fear because you'll never know you've done enough. It's the exam that's about to come. 
Have I studied enough? Have I got the right answers? Will I fail? There will always be fear in that kind of rule-based religion. These commands in chapter 13 are not what you do to earn God's favour. These are what you do having been brought into God's favour. This is what you do in a response to having been brought to Mount Zion by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12. This is what you do having been forgiven, having been reconciled to God and established in relationship with him, not by your own efforts and merit, but by the blood of Jesus, by the high priest who comes to offer a sacrifice once for all, whose blood covers the sin, it cleanses you to your very soul. This is what you do having been saved. That's why chapter 12 ends the way it does. Have a look there at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, since we have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus by grace alone and forgiveness, not works, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And chapter 13, it's what that worship looks like. What does it look like to worship God acceptably? Chapter 13. And you'll notice actually through chapter 13 there's no mention of the um, hour and a half of your experience in church. It's, it's not saying that um, worship is reduced just to singing. It's saying worship is your whole life, of which singing's a part. But culturally we have shifted. In a, the Bible is saying this is what you do having been saved, not to earn your salvation, fundamental, distinct. But the second reason this is not taking us back to Mount Sinai and the fear and oppression that there is because chapter 13, the commands are gifts from God to the saved to further save them. Let me explain what I mean. God is about saving us from two things. The penalty of sin and its power. He is about saving us from sin in its two dimensions. The penalty and power. God's intent all along was to free us from sin. To bring us back to the glory of the image that he made us in from the very beginning and actually beyond that to even a greater glory where we are perfected to be all that he purposes for us. And so he seeks to save us from the penalty of sin and he does that in the work of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. He's pouring out of his blood to cleanse and purify and reconcile. Penalty is gone. But then by his Holy Spirit, he unites us to the person of Jesus to transform us from the power of sin. And that's what chapter 13 is. These are the good promises, commands of God that are about transforming us to be free from sin and its power. Now, the challenge, of course, is that these commands will always be hard to keep. There's no sort of magic automatic bang that just makes it easy. Uh, Chapter 12 begins with the need to run the race with perseverance. Uh, We have to run, we have to work. And chapter 13, whilst ever there is sin in the world that still pervades our life, to fight against sin will require a fight. To be free from the power of sin, to say no to sin, will always involve effort, even though it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. You see the two things I'm saying? Chapter 13, with all its commands, doesn't take us back to Mount Sinai with the oppressive fear of Mount Sinai, because they're not the way we're saved. We are saved. These are the commands to those who have been saved. And secondly, they're a gift of God, 
to save us from the power of sin, the corruption of sin, to free us to be all that we were meant to be. These things are good things. And it's that second one I want to pay most attention to. I want to show us how these commands are actually good for us. They're God's blessing to us. They're not oppressive. They're not uh, destroying of the good life. They bring the good life. Um, Now, it's not always easy to see that, particularly in one of the commands that we're going to spend most time on, verse 4. So if you've got your Bibles, have a quick look at verse 4. And if you haven't got your Bibles, you'll be wondering what I'm talking about. But why have you not got your Bibles? Bring a Bible. Go and get that pack and grab a Bible and begin to bring it with you. Or if you've got your phone, sure, you can use it. Um, But it is obvious these are good commands when you look at the first three. Look at the first three. First one, keep on loving one another. That's a good command. Show hospitality to strangers. Now, aside from the danger of bringing any just stranger into your household, of course, but showing love and hospitality, God calls us to do because he wants to enlarge our lives and our hearts. That we not just be people who love our own friends and family, but that we actually have a greater love where we step outside our comfort zone and begin to invite people into hospitality with us that we, don't, we wouldn't ordinarily choose as friends, that we're not used to hanging around with, that are different to us, that we begin to be people who are bigger and larger and we grow. These are good calls of God to show hospitality and to stand, verse 3, in solidarity with those who are in prison, to be those people who uh, think about Christian brethren who are oppressed and care for them and not walk away. These are good things and I think it's very obvious that they are such good things and if I might just offer a very practical piece of advice here on hospitality it does strike me how a previous generation got this in a way that we haven't Uh, as I talk to older Christians much older than me Christians um, as I talk to previous generations and saw them in action many older Christians made a practice of Sunday lunch being not just a family experience but a broader hospitality experience where they'd, um, many weeks in a month, they would bring their family together for for lunch, uh, but invite one, two or others from church into that experience of hospitality as an expression of Hebrews 13. And so the kids grew up week by week seeing the family be bigger than just the family. And it's a beautiful thing to have experienced. Now, I don't see that as much today amongst us. And it's interesting to know why. And I would encourage you to consider going back to it. Perhaps weekly is too much, perhaps monthly though. Make a first Sunday of the month or something like this. A habit where you invite not just friends, not just people exactly like you, but others uh, as you're getting to know them in church into your home and show hospitality. Uh, make that a practice, uh, fulfilling the Hebrew. It's a beautiful gift of God for us. We've been saved by the generous God to show generosity to others. Love. But the next command, verse 4, to many of us, does not seem like a good command. It's not obvious that verse 4 is leading us to that which is good. Or if we think it probably is right, we only think it superficially. Because deep in our hearts, we're not really sure it's a good command. If you haven't got your Bible, let me read verse 4 for you. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now I think many of us hear that and at a superficial level we go, yeah, yeah, Christians have got to be, yeah, I get that. 
But a deeper heart level, we find ourselves going, I'm not sure I think it's that good. Why? Well, many of us are not even sure what it means. Uh, what is the verse actually saying? Um, let alone convinced that it's a good thing. So here's my plan this morning. My plan is to explain what the verse means, uh, and in contrast to the way many of our culture understands this verse, draw out why I think we find this a command that's not easy to believe, and then try and convince you that it's a good word from God. There's a journey. We'll touch on the money issue right at the end, only very briefly, because we've already talked about it. But let's hit this verse. Uh, what does it actually mean to say marriage should be honoured by all, keep the marriage bed pure? What does all of that mean? Well, marriage. Let's go through this. Marriage. What is marriage? Now, don't answer that, of course, but this is a rhetorical question. But what is this thing that we're meant to honour? What is marriage? Um, now, in a society that has just legalised same-sex marriage, it's clear we have got a very different view as a culture to what marriage is than the way the Bible thinks about it. If it's possible for our culture to think it's okay to call uh, a man and a man in their relationship marriage, that means we have a very different view of what the word marriage means to the way the Bible thought about it. So let me try and explain what the Bible thinks, what we think today. What, what, what do we think marriage is today? I think most of us tend to assume that marriage today is just a public affirmation of one person's romantic sexual love for another. So, so, so why marry today? Well, because a couple are in love. Man, man, woman, just two people are in love. And they want to publicly celebrate that romantic sexual love and have it endorsed. I think that's how we view marriage today. But that is very different to the way the Bible understands marriage. Biblically, marriage is a public act, but it's the public act between one man and one woman who make promises to each other of a determination to commit to one another for life in a monogamous sexual union with the view to forming a new family. That's marriage in the Bible. A public declaration of one man to one woman of a determination to commit to one another for life in a monogamous sexual union with a view to forming a new family. Do you see the difference? It's subtle and profound. Biblical marriage majors on lifelong promises of commitment to one another and the formation of a new family for the sake of children. That's biblical marriage. It's not about romantic love. Now, that is a shock for most of us. But biblical marriage is not about romantic love. It is about a man and a woman publicly forming a new family based on their vows of commitment to one another that a man would commit to love and care for a woman for life and a woman would commit to love that one man for her life, so that the act of sex would be bound into that relationship and if children come, they would have their mum and dad with them. That's the biblical view of marriage. And the Bible says that's the thing that should be honoured. By all. Do you notice the language there in four? 
Marriage should be honoured by all. It's not just those who are married who should honour marriage, but single people, widowed people, divorced people even. I'll come and have a very brief comment about divorce shortly. But Now, it's possible to hear all of this about marriage, the biblical view of marriage, and find ourselves going, yeah, no. Nah. I get it. I get what you're saying, but I'm not sure it's a good command of God at all. It feels very restrictive to me. The language of keep the marriage bed pure, what does that mean? Well, the marriage bed is a euphemism for sexual relationships in marriage. The marriage bed is a place where this occurs. It assumes, of course, the rightness of sex in marriage. God is for sex in marriage. And it assumes that it will be a sexual union, the marriage union. But what it says is that sex, all forms of sex outside of this union, the union of a one man with one woman are wrong and God will judge. He will judge all sex outside the union of one man, one woman, the the adulterer and the sexually immoral. He's capturing up the broadest possible scope. And aren't we now feeling a little bit more uncomfortable? You know, I suspect this is one of those age things. If you're over 60... And I know there are some people that old. If you're over 60, then I think you're sitting there saying, yes, preach it, brother. But if you're under 40, I think you're probably feeling a little uncomfortable. Have I landed in a foreign country when I came to church today? This seems primitive and old-fashioned and narrow. What business is it of God what people do in their own homes? Now, if you're not a churchgoer and you're here today and you're hearing all of this, you're probably not just feeling uncomfortable, you're probably profoundly shocked. If this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want a part of it. This is called a defeater belief, a belief that people find is just too much of a barrier to come into the things of Christ. Um, Why such a set of reactions? Why is it that a younger age finds this a little unusual, a little weird, perhaps a little primitive? Uh, Why is it? I want to suggest it's because of the impact of the sexual revolution. The profound way in which the last 60, 70, 80 years have shaped our thinking on the good life and on sex. So I want to tackle those two things. I want to help us understand why we're where we're at and then have some analysis of it. See, why are we where we're at? Because um, the way we think about what is the good life has been profoundly changed in the last 70 or so years. And the way we think about sex has profoundly changed. Let me try and make sense of this for us. The good life. What is the good life? What is the key feature to living your best life? Well, the great driver of the sexual revolution was the pursuit of freedom. Being free was the great value that was pushed from the to be free from all the constraints of the 1950s, of a previous generation, of the Christian faith, of religions, all kinds of things. Be free. That was the big rallying cry and has been the great cry. Um, the, the, to be free to do whatever I choose to do, to be free to be whoever I want to be. Um, this is understood as integral to the good life. If you want to live the flourishing life, and it's so profound, this impact of the last 60, 70 years on our thinking, that I don't think many of us can think past that. To many of us, this seems like a self-evident truth that if you're going to live a good life, you need to be free. Free from constraints. Uh, 
And the enemy of the good life, if you want to destroy the good life, it's to be in a context where you're constrained. I think that's almost self-evident to us today. Um, And so culturally, we struggle with the biblical way of thinking about marriage. We don't struggle with the modern way of thinking about marriage. The modern way of thinking about marriage is not about lifelong faithfulness, you see. It's about saying you love each other publicly and it's about celebrating my romantic affection for another person. And of course, if, it, if the romantic love fades and this relationship is not meaningful and, and uh, contributes to my well-being, I can step out of it in divorce at any time I like without any fault or needing to justify. So that's, marriage is very different in the way we think today. It's not at all a restriction on freedom. But the Bible's view of marriage as a lifelong, monogamous union between a man and a woman is the very enemy of freedom. It means that if I marry in a way the Bible defines it, I give up my freedoms. I give up my freedom to love anyone else romantically, gone. I give up my freedom to have sex with anyone else. I'm now bound to just love romantically this person in a sexual way and no It means constraining my life to this one man, this one woman for life. And that was the very, the very battle many feminists fought was against the institution of marriage because it constrained women and men and was antithetical to freedom. And so in our day and age, this, the conquest of the modern view of marriage has been so profound, marriage in the biblical sense is dead. Rates of marriage have plummeted. In the 60s, 80% of households were married couples. Today, it's just 49% of households are married couples. The rates of divorce have skyrocketed. 50% of all divorces end in marriage. (laughs) Wouldn't that be beautiful? 50% 50% of all marriages end in divorce, yeah, end in divorce. And I'm sorry, the, it's a very poor time to have humour. It's a, it's a tr- and divorce uh, is a terribly painful thing, and as I know some of you have experienced. And I want to speak to you again in a moment. But it's, a ter- it's second only to death, the loss of a husband or wife through divorce. It takes years to recover. Um, marriage as a lifelong monogamous union between a man and a woman, it's dead. In a world that has thought uh, that freedom from constraint is the key to the good life, the biblical view of marriage has no place. So to honour it, I'll honour the contemporary view of marriage, but I'll honour the biblical one. Now there's the first thing. Why are we where we are? Because there's been a massive change in the way we think about marriage. The, why are we where we are? Uh, and, and freedom. Freedom has just been the big driver. Why are we where we are? Because our view of sex has been transformed. Now, this sounds weird, right? How, I mean, sex is sex, isn't it? How can you transform sex? Well, let me explain. Uh, sex has been, and this is using a word from uh, scholars and other authors who have written about this, sex has been disenchanted. Now, disenchanted. The Bible's view of sex, uh, and our culture had this uh, for many, many years, centuries until the 60s. The Bible's view of sex is that it is a sacred thing, an enchanted thing, a magical thing. 
It was full of meaning. To have sex with someone was to do something special. It was to give of yourself in a very profound and deep way. Today, our society has worked to remove the enchantment from sex. So it has been redefined to be something of no inherent meaning. It is just a physical act between two people, male, female, whatever, that gives physical pleasure and that's all it is. We are animals and the physical act of sex is nothing more than a physical act with no inherent meaning. Now, if you want to give it meaning, go for it. But it has no inherent meaning, you have to make it up. And so it is no different in the modern view to any other social interaction. Someone gives person back massage and that's pleasurable. Another person gives sexual favours to another and that's pleasurable. Same, same. One's not more meaningful than the other. One's not any more sacred than the other. They're both the same. Um, do you agree that that's what's happened? This is why we no longer talk about prostitution as prostitution. We don't use the word prostitution because that suggests uh, something demeaning. Rather, we talk about sex workers because the work of selling your body to another person and selling sex is just another form of work and ought not be discriminated against. Just like someone washes windows for another person as a, to, to earn money, you can give your body in sex for another person and earn money. It's, just, it's the same saying. There's nothing inherently enchanted about the act of sex. We have desacredized it. It is no longer sacred. Now, why has this happened? You, don't, but you agree that this has happened. Why has it happened? To bring freedom. Do you remember? Sexual revolution has been all about freedom. To be free from the taboos that limit us sexually. So that people, men, but women particularly, were able then to be free to have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. And to not feel restrained or constrained sexually. Because sex is just a good and natural thing, a way of enjoying another person and giving pleasure with another person. It's nothing more than that. And so we ought to be free to um, in enjoy that with whoever we want and not be constrained and feel like there's anything special that's happening unless you want it to be. So let's get rid of the sense that it's sacred. Get rid of the taboos around casual sex. That's prudish. And let people be free, do you see, to enjoy themselves. Now, we've been trained to think like this for decades. Every movie, every book, the media elites, it's about winning freedom and our kids are being taught this. It's just part of the air we breathe. And so, verse 4 just seems weird. Marriage should be honoured by all, the kind of marriage the Bible means. Whoa. And the marriage bed kept pure because God will judge all sexual activity outside of marriage. That reads to us as primitive and almost horrific. And it's hard to see that it's good. The problem is, the consequences of this way of thinking have been devastating. Except for the powerful elites. It's akin, this is akin to what I raised with you uh, some month or so ago, going through Proverbs 31, but... When we lose marriage as a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, we lose one of the most important protections for women and children. Now, in 1968, 8% of kids lived without both parents at home. But now it's 50% of kids live without both biological parents at home. 
That is a profound, profound change. Now, is this, this is not meant to be a critique of single mums amongst us or step-parents amongst us, because I know you are doing a fantastic job, but it's tricky. But it is a critique of a society that has pushed on us the expectation that single parenting and so on is surely just as okay as. No, it's very, very different. Every study, until it was socially unacceptable to have these studies, every study in mum, dad, kids proved that kids do best with biological mum and dad at home. When you change that structure, it impacts children's life. Yes, there are great single parents amongst us and praise God for the work that you do. There are great step-parents amongst us and praise God for your efforts. Wonderful. The evidence, though, is that the social consequences of no longer having marriage between the mum and dad for life are devastating. Now, what's fueled this? A determination in our society to not honour the biblical view of marriage because it restrained us, it ruined our freedoms. Um, but here's the deal. The biblical view of marriage creates men who are tempered, hardened and strengthened because they've had to learn to restrain their sexual desires, drives and their tendency towards casual sex, which men tend to have a greater tendency for various reasons. But marriage tempers men to learn self-control and discipline and focus their energies into a different place, which is powerfully profound for men. It deepens them as men. And it gives women support at the very time they need support during the child-rearing years. You know, we can, we can say all we like about how men and women should be the same and women can look after themselves and it's paternalistic to think that women need a man. They need a man like a fish needs a bike and all that kind of stuff. We can say all of that all we like. But the fact is, during pregnancy, birth and the early years of child-rearing, it is best to have a woman who is vulnerable during all of that time to have someone support them. Now, we know that because we've asked the government to do it. We know that women need support during those years. But what's best is to have the man who side the child to be there to support her and the children that he brought into this world. That's best for them, for the mother, for life. Sex is sacred. We can talk all we like, how but it's just another physical, we're just animals. But the fact is, despite all we're told, women know it's not just another act. Here's where women, men, are far more attuned to good realities. Women are far more inclined to realise that sex is an act of intimate giving of themselves, that is deeply, profoundly personal, that, that um, is sacred and full of enchantment. It is something deeply special. You know, the sexual revolution created a hookup culture uh, where casual sex was regarded as acceptable and whatever you want to choose, go for it. But the vast majority of women are seriously hurt by such a culture if they engage in it. They say they're consenting and it's their empowerment, but the consequences on them are devastating. Women regularly, the vast majority of women... Uh, inevitably are left feeling used, depressed, hurt and worthless. Why? 
Because a woman giving sex is meaningful. It's a deeply meaningful and sacred act. We can keep saying it's like any other social activity. Say it all we like, but deep down we know it's not, and women are particularly attuned to this. The movies portray it as the life of freedom, sex whenever with whoever. What they don't show you is the consequences. They pretend they're not there. Sex is enchanted. Men, you need to hear this. Because by virtue of our biology and testosterone and various other pieces, uh, we are not so attuned to these realities. Sex is a good gift from God for the purposes of binding a man, one man and one woman together for a lifelong union. And being the means by which a new life is given as the fruit of their loving sexual act. What a profoundly wise God. Children are bought into a family that unites the one, the mother and father together further into this growing unity of oneness. It is a powerful gift used rightly within the bonds that God has created, but outside of that it destroys both men and women. Consider the impact of porn on the world of young men. The world tells us that sex is just a physical thing, it's just scratching an itch, it's no more meaningful and significant. Men have bought that lie. And men are the most prone, of course, to believing this, feeling this. And so porn for men, women, you need to hear this, porn for men doesn't feel to them like a betrayal. It just feels like scratching an itch. It just doesn't have the... It needs to. I'm not saying otherwise. But you need to understand men and women feel differently about this, though they're wrong to feel this way. You hear the point I'm trying to make. Um, but what's happening is it's producing a generation of young men and some women who are totally dysfunctional in their relationships. Because sex is sacred and enchanted and when it's used casually outside of a monogamous marriage union between a man and a woman, it brings harm, not good. We have been lied to. You have been lied to for years by the media by the social world, by the community, by the culture, by our politicians even. We have been lied to. And when you see the consequences, when your eyes are open to what these lies have produced in the hurt, loneliness and dysfunction, particularly among our children, generations are being, millions of children are being raised dysfunctionally because of these lies. What emotion should that engender? Grief. Even anger. But the problem is, we've all been complicit. We've walked along with all of this. God, verse 4, has not. And he looks upon his world with grief and he will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Not because he's narrow, but because he loves his world. This is God's good word. Marriage should be honoured by all because it's a gift from the good God. It's the glue for our society. It's a gift for women and children. Keep the marriage bed pure. It's for your good and your children's good. Believe this. 
Know in your heart that it's good because that will empower you to love this word of God and keep this word of God, to be strengthened in your ability to keep this word. He saved you to be saved, do you see? He saved you from the penalty of sin that you might be transformed to heed these commands and be freed from the sin that he needed to rescue you from, do you see? The goodness and love of God. Men, start debugging your thinking about sex and the act of sex. See how your commitment to your wife is precious and be committed to her for life. Even when you don't feel romantically in love with her, be faithful to her because that's what marriage is. Now God in his goodness uses sex and that life together to produce affections and deeper love that transcends just romance. Love her and be for her. Women, love your husbands. Understand their differences. Be patient with them, but push them to see what they need to see. Now, a quick comment about divorce. What, what happens if things haven't gone well and you're amongst us having been divorced? Look, there's a lot to say here, but can I just say a couple of quick words? I know this is inadequate, but if you've been divorced amongst us, it's not immediate evidence that you've not honoured God as you ought. Divorce is not always... There are, there are reasons at times for divorce to be the right response. Reluctant, rare, but there are times when a woman needs to divorce her husband and a husband needs to divorce. So it is not always sin. Um, know that. Now, sometimes it is. If you have divorced your wife to find another woman... You need to repent. God's gracious. He is the God full of grace and mercy. He is the God whose blood will cleanse you. Know that true. And know, friends, you are loved amongst us. Do you see? We are for you. And I know many of you who have gone through divorce, it has been so dreadful. It's been so far from what you wanted to have happen in your life. And the consequence has been so great. If you were up here, you'd preach this to everyone else. You'd say, do whatever you can to keep your marriage alive wouldn't you? Do whatever you can to protect your marriage. Honour the marriage. This is God's good word. As is the word about contentment, but we've run out of time. I would just draw your attention to the beautiful verses there, verse 5 and 6 and 8. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In the context of fear about your finances... And the changes in the economy and inflation, remember that the Lord is with you. You don't need to be afraid. These quotes from the Old Testament, the Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever. One great theologian said many centuries ago, what must a man possess who possesses the possessor of all things? If the God who possesses all things is your God, what else do you need for your marriage, for your finances? How about I pray? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your good word. We thank you that you have saved us from the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus. What a costly sacrifice. And we thank you that your desire is good to save us from the power of sin in our lives. Help us please appreciate the goodness of your word to entrust ourselves to it and to know that you are the God who is for us. We need never fear 
that you are at work for good in all things. And we ask that you might deepen our hearts and our appreciation of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.